0: Welcome to The Prevention Perspective, a podcast dedicated to sharing information, ideas, and resources about violence prevention work. The topics discussed in this podcast, including healthy relationships, prevention practices, and dating or sexual violence, can be difficult, and we urge you to listen with care. Our hosts are not licensed counselors or mental health professionals. If you or someone you care about have experienced domestic, dating, or sexual violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. You can also find more resources in the description of this podcast.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Prevention Perspective. My name is Tracy Darling DeMarcus, Prevention Program Manager at the WCA in Boise. I'm here with my co-host, Maria. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Maria. I'm a
0: JVC Northwest AmeriCorps volunteer, and I'm Prevention Coordinator at WCA.
1: Awesome. Um, We are in our third episode now for this season um, and have an amazing guest with us today, Megan Musser. Um, amazing co-worker colleague here at the WCA and has a lot of excellent experience that we're so excited to talk with her today. <laughs> Welcome, Megan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about
2: you and what you do? Yeah, Well, my name is Megan, and I am the clinical services manager at the WCA. So I get to work alongside the clinicians and the case managers who do direct service with clients coming in who have lived experiences with domestic violence and sexual assault and come in to get support around healing from those experiences, processing those experiences, et cetera, and oftentimes gaining independence from the experiences through case management as well. Uh, I'm a licensed social worker and have been licensed as a social worker for almost 13 years. Um, I got my master's way back in 2010 and have been doing work in the world of social work since then and have been in the world of sexual assault and domestic violence social work since 2014. Awesome.
1: Thank you so much for being here and just spending time with us being in overall like amazing human (laughs) always a pleasure um why did you choose to go into social work or to be a clinician
2: that's a good question i i think i've kind of always had social work in me Uh, my parents said that my preschool teacher in like parent teacher conferences told them i shared too much that i gave all my toys away instead of playing with them myself And I remember the first time, I have like a very vivid memory of the first time I saw somebody and realized that they were unhoused and how unfair and wrong that felt to me. And thinking like I actually wrote in my diary, which I still have, that I was going to build a home for people to live in who didn't have homes. Uh, how old were you? I think I was like eight or nine. Wow. Is that late? I don't know. But um, <laughs> I just remember, you know, Boise is a pretty sheltered city. I grew up here. And um, yeah, I just remember thinking like, that's not okay. Why? How is that how we operate? And how are we okay with that as a society? I didn't know exactly what that meant for like my Future obviously in those times, Eight, yeah, you don't have all <laughs> yeah the options. Probably still wanted to be a veterinarian or something, but um, yeah, I went to college and studied psychology for a little while. I thought I'd do pre med, and then I took chemistry and realized that pre med wasn't only about helping people and. <laughs> Stepped away from from the sciences and eventually landed in psychology because I was at a small liberal arts school that didn't have a ton of options and ended up then uh, living abroad for a few years. And it was in that work where I really came to understand what social work was and came to realize that was where I wanted to to be. So I applied to grad school and have been a social worker ever since. Very cool. Can you tell us a little bit more about your study abroad experience? Like
0: what did you learn from that?
2: Yeah. So I studied abroad through my university in El Salvador. It was a four-month program. We lived in community. It was similar to JVC. Um, where we lived in community with other students studying abroad. We took classes at the university there. And then we had placements two days a week where we went into the community. It was really based in immersive learning. So we weren't there to help or to kind of have that like saving role that we often see white folks going into marginalized communities or um, underserved communities and trying to take up. We were really just there to like hang out and get to know and build relationships and again somebody from Boise Idaho lived a pretty sheltered life it was the first time that I really built relationships with people who were living incredibly different lives than me Um, and I truly fell in love with them right like they the way that they lived and gave and showed up in the world even though they had you know in my perspective such quote-unquote hard lives really allowed me to kind of recognize, I don't know, like how love and beauty can show up in all different ways um, and how I can be a part of witnessing that and how life-giving that was for me, even though I wasn't necessarily giving to them, Um, you know, like making their lives easier other than through being present and being witness to them as humans and holding space for them, which I think was what made me think of like counseling, right? Not like the social work Because obviously giving resources and helping connect people into the community referrals and building more equal systems is a huge part of social work. And I'm super passionate about all of that. But I think a lot of what I see in my role is just being present to people and giving people a space where they feel safe and heard and cared about by a, you know, a quote unquote stranger who like doesn't have any buy-in to who they are. Because I think so often, especially with issues like sexual assault and domestic violence, like that's so far from our reality. When we're in the place of trauma, we feel like nobody cares. We're told repeatedly by abusive partners, nobody cares, you're not you know, you're not worth anything. So to be able to be the person who can tell them, no, that's like, that's not true. You are worth people being here, people hearing your story, people honoring how strong and resilient and incredible you are as a human. Yeah, really important.
1: That's great. And Actually leads us really nicely into the next um,
2: kind of chunk of the podcast that we wanted to
1: talk with you about, which are protective factors, specifically at an individual level. So, what an individual might be able to do, um, or might be able to create for themselves, that helps protect against being victimized or being a potential perpetrator of, of violence. One of those protective factors is a positive temperament and self-concept, and I feel like that really ties in with what you were just saying in, in terms of having value simply for being human. Can you talk a little bit more about like how that shows up in your work or how we're working with clients, you help build up that positive self-concept? And
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I think so much of counseling, especially in this setting, right? So we... See folks who are either coming out of a domestic violence relationship or may still be in a domestic violence relationship. And so they're receiving constant messages from their abuser and from society around their worth, their well being, kind of what they deserve. And oftentimes they're really being torn down, kind of consistently, right? And that's a part of the power that the abuser is trying to claim, right? They're trying to build up their power by breaking down the other person's. And so for us, holding a space where we can validate their feelings, validate their experiences, normalize them. So help them realize that while this isn't normal behavior that they're experiencing, it's not a healthy Relationship, it is something that we see frequently within the realm of the violent relationship, of the unhealthy relationship, so that they don't feel like they're the only person who's ever lived this. Mm. And then really helping them build their strengths. So, even from the intake, one of the questions we ask them is, you know, what are your strengths? What are you good at? And it's always really interesting to hear people reflect on it. Oftentimes it's really external things that they first identify because it's really scary for them to identify internal things or things about who they actually are as a person. Um, And oftentimes their strengths in the beginning are really about how they are to other people as opposed to just how they are as an individual. And so it's really... That gives us both things to help them build up, but also awareness of what they view as their areas that are not strengths that we can help to kind of build and support throughout therapy and really breaking down some of the myths that the abuser and society really give folks when they're when they're in an abusive relationship or when they've experienced a recent sexual assault or a past sexual assault.
0: Yeah, can you tell us how your work is helping increase protective factors among like your clients and family
2: and how that's contributing to reducing domestic violence and sexual assault? Sure, yeah. So I think, you know, obviously we want to be really intentional to make sure that folks know that abuse is never the victim's fault. And even if you present with all of the protective factors we are still unfortunately at risk Mm. right and I, i say that not because i it i want people to be worried but because i want victims to know that it's not what they've done that has or how they've shown up um that has caused the abuse the abuse is caused by the abuser um but I do think that in the same vein, there are things that make us more susceptible to experiencing abuse that are oftentimes outside of our control and have to do with societal norms, with cultural norms. <laughs> And with kind of some of these individual factors that oftentimes come from childhood, from relationships with adults when we're youth, Mm -hmm. especially if we've witnessed domestic violence within our home, right, normalizing some of these things. Um, And a lot of those affect our self-concept, right? So if we've seen a parent experience domestic violence in the home, we see the self-concept that our parent did or didn't have and bring into that space, Um, And oftentimes that can have an effect on us. Same with gender norms and all the other pieces of that. So I think as we create safe spaces that oftentimes our clients have never had before, especially if they had trauma in their childhood, into adulthood, even if it's completely separate from domestic violence per se, they maybe have never had a safe space where somebody told them that they mattered. Mm -hmm. And that's just so, it's so important to have that, to be able to kind of shift that view of, do I deserve a healthy relationship. Um, And especially if their abuser has been telling them, you you're worthless. You don't deserve. Yeah. And you don't deserve anything. You're so lucky. You have me. You're so lucky. I provide for you. Um, Even though maybe that person providing for them looks like, you know, them allowing them $10 for groceries a mm -hmm. week or something. So I think just making sure that we're creating a safe space where people can really, feel cared for, feel validated, and then build their own skills around, you know, helping them process their feelings, helping them self-regulate, helping them have those tools that oftentimes when we live in a traumatic environment throughout our youth, we don't build because we don't have Mm -hmm. safe spaces to do so. And because we're living in survival mode, right? So we're not, we don't have the capacity to really be thinking about, wow, how can I self-regulate? Because we're just Surviving, Right. Can you speak a little bit more to like this
1: idea of emotional intelligence or emotional competency? And what connection does that have to experiencing violence or or perpetrating violence? Like, how are those things connected? And how can we help build that emotional intelligence or emotional capacity within ourselves or within other people or especially like young folks that we might be working with?
2: Absolutely. A lot of what we do is just really basic helping folks identify their emotions, right? I think a lot of times um, we talk about kind of what are we feeling, and we can label it as good or bad. We can label it as um, healthy or unhealthy, but oftentimes it's way more complex than that. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times helping folks identify what are you feeling, where is it coming from, and how can you process it? How can you... Kind of find safe and healthy ways to release it if it's a feeling that you don't want to be holding on to. Um, I'm thinking of, for example, the anger iceberg. So, this idea that somebody's feeling really angry, but really, what is underneath the anger? What is causing the anger? How can they maybe process or release some of the feelings that are then showing up as anger? Because when we have safe ways to do that, then we can help ourselves just feel safer with our emotions, right? Mm -hmm. And help ourselves maybe instead of going from 1 to 10 the minute we start to feel something because it feels safe, unsafe and uncomfortable, to be able to sit with it and process it and find people to talk to about it and name it. And all of those things can allow us to kind of move on from it in a healthy way, as opposed to getting stuck in it. And I think a lot of that connects to trauma healing too, right? If we can't name our emotions or recognize what we're feeling, it can be really hard to move on from a trauma. And I don't say move on, like leave in the past, but like process it and move through it in a safe way so that we can really live our best life. So Megan, how
0: could someone who is not a counselor, maybe like a parent, teacher, friend, help increase these
2: protective factors for children in their lives or youth in their lives? Great question. This is something I think a lot about as a parent. And I think it's just a really valuable thing because not everybody has access to counseling. Not everybody has the desire to attend counseling. And I think it's something that we can really do as individuals in the community without the counseling space for sure. So one of the main things that I think about is holding space, uh, creating a place where folks can come to you and share about their experiences without feeling judgment or shame. I think so much of domestic violence is isolation and the feelings of shame that people have when they go to people, especially if the people that they go to say, well, you just have to get out of the relationship because obviously it's not that simple. And so having a space where you feel safe, you feel unjudged, you feel like you can go and talk with somebody and they care is so much, especially when we think about that self concept, right? That idea that you are worthy to deserve more than an unhealthy relationship comes from being able to know that other people hold you as worthy. And as much as it feels like when you love somebody and they're in a domestic violence relationship, the way to really empower them out of it is to tell them that, They deserve better and they have to leave this relationship. If that's not in a place, if that's not where the individual is, if they're not in a place where they have the tools or the finances or the logistics to leave the relationship, then if they end up staying, they feel like maybe you're not a safe place anymore. So I think a lot of it is just caring, telling them you care and holding space. Obviously, as a support person, you also have to have your own boundaries. And at some point it might feel like you... You need to hold some boundaries around how much presence you can have to somebody if it's feeling exhausting or hard for you. But I think there's a middle ground where you can do both. And I really encourage people to find Those spaces. Um, And the other thing I think is just, you know, building up your own self-concept and your own self-regulation skills um, and other protective factors for yourself, because then you can model those for the people around you, whether you're a parent, a teacher, whether it's a friend, right? They will be inspired by you and the way that you hold yourself, the way that you engage in relationships. Just as we are inspired by the people around us and how they show up in relationships, whether they're romantic relationships or friendships. And so I think holding the healthiest relationships you can for yourself um, and really just holding space for the the other person as well.
1: Yeah, I think about that a lot in the work that we do in, in prevention and, you know, going into a lot of spaces where we're. Interacting with young people who a lot of them have had a lot of past experiences of trauma. Maybe they haven't had a lot of good examples of adults having having the capabilities to regulate their emotions or to identify and, and process that. And when we do go into these spaces and they can't get sometimes difficult, challenging for us, even just us being able to be there and model that like, OK, something happened in this group that maybe had us get dysregulated or out of our you know zone of like okay even just modeling how we can move through that and still show up and still like and not just say like okay well you made made me mad or you upset me in this way so I'm not coming next week or I'm not showing up again you know Um, I think even that in and of itself can be a protective factor because there might not be any other adults
2: that they're seeing that with in their lives absolutely so. The number one tool when you're meeting with a crisis client or a client who's in crisis as a counselor is to remain calm, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously we want to validate the feelings that the client is having, um, but you can do that without meeting them there. Uh, and I think that that can be hard for folks, especially if they're anxious and they can meet the person there. But how does that feel to the client? How, how does that feel to the clinician when they step out of the space and they are still elevated? And so, yeah, holding that calm and presence and showing up and showing care even when the person maybe feels like they don't deserve it is so valuable
1: well we know you know we're not able to talk about every single risk and protective factor in every level of the social ecology with you (laughs) all today but are there any things that you can think of that would help people in our community thrive again with these like individual protective factors like how can we do better for the folks in our community with with these things
2: Yeah, I think a lot of what we've spoken about, right, modeling it as individuals on the individual level, talking about these topics that can be stigmatized and really making sure that we're not shying away from hard topics and conversation in communities, making sure that we, you know, I think there's a a lot of, especially as women, there's a lot of pressure to not be full of yourself or overly confident, but then there's this yeah, just importance of that, like fight between being egotistical Mm. and holding yourself in high self-esteem. And so I just really encourage people to figure out what that looks like for them, right? How can you honor yourself while still showing up humbly and knowing that we always have things to learn, no matter how many years we've been at this life, we are always learning and growing and humility is so important, especially as we engage in hard conversations, right? So yeah, I think just kind of how are you holding yourself in community with the people around you and your society? And then how are you holding the people around you, surrounding yourself with good people? I think the other piece, just in terms of building strong, healthy communities, is um, recognizing the importance of empowering folks to gain tools to increase these protective factors that we've been talking about, while also not creating spaces where people feel like the lack of those tools caused the abuse, mm. right? We recognize that the abuse is only caused by the abuser, um, And so also looking at how are we engaging folks who maybe are not necessarily showing healthy ways of processing emotions, that maybe tend towards violence more easily. How are we engaging them in healthier ways to en- engage those feelings? And I think that's where that social emotional competence and self-regulation is also so important for people who maybe are a little bit more likely to perpetrate violence mm. in relationships to be learning how to process some of those really hard feelings. So it doesn't erupt into anger, especially if that's what they've seen, what they've witnessed, what has been modeled to them. Yeah, Absolutely. I think of the old, like,
1: adage of, like, hurt people hurt people, yeah. right? And so we know that, again, increasing or increased risk factors to perpetrating violence also make it more likely that they will also be victimized. And so I think just I've, I've thought about this a lot in terms of this field and, like, what are we doing for people who haven't learned a different way or haven't been given the tools to engage in, in other ways and other healthy ways with, with people they're in relationships with? Because leaving them behind or leaving them out
2: is not going to solve anything, right? And it's so there are a lot of hurt people who don't hurt people, right? Right? And I think that that's really important to recognize mm-hmm. that there are a lot of hurt people who've been able to, whether it's through access to services like therapy or whether it's through their own incredible resilience, have been able to process and move forward from that, and changed some of that generational trauma, mm-hmm. changed some of the the paths that their family might be on or whatever, where they've been able to really yeah, make changes um, and been hurt people who have built beautiful lives for themselves and their families and their communities. And I think that that's just really essential for us to recognize, and especially for folks who are survivors, who have that lived experience to know that it's not, they're not doomed, their communities and their right. families are not doomed, that there's so much potential for healing and so many people like... The two of you who want to create spaces for youth and survivors in general and perpetrators, right? Like there are a lot of programs that are really looking at how can we help people make their lives better and make the communities that we live in better too.
1: Yeah. These factors don't mean destiny. One Trip. way
0: or the other, right? Yeah. yeah. So Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Like, I want to be aware of your time and also leave the space for you to say any final thoughts that you want everyone to hear or listening in. So I'll kind of pass the mic to you. Thanks.
2: Yeah, no, I feel like we covered some really good topics and I hope that this conversation can leave people empowered to make good changes for themselves and the way that they show up in their communities and believe in the value and importance of the preventative work in creating healing. And I'm excited to continue to learn alongside you all as we do our best at showing up in the work that we do here at the WCA and just as members of our community and society at large thanks so much megan and thank you all for for tuning in
1: um, we are so excited to be back with this new season and have some really really great guests lined up for the rest of our episode so stick around and stay tuned for our next episode in two weeks and we'll see you all then
0: thank you for listening to this episode of the prevention perspective Again, if you or someone you know has experienced domestic, dating, or sexual violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Or you can call the WCA's 24-hour hotline at 208-343-7025. Don't forget to follow us on social media at WCA underscore Boise and WCA youth reps. If you have any suggestions for topics you would like us to cover or get more information about anything you heard on today's episode, contact us through the email provided in the description of the podcast.
1: I hope that it will help you to do a better job.